Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. haven't said thank you and welcome to new Just Sleep Premium members in a long time. Sorry for that. So a quick shout out to some new members. Alexandria, Annette, Jonathan, Cassandra, and John. I have decided this week to offer a seven-day free trial of Just Sleep Premium. So if you want to check out bonus episodes and have ad-free listening, head over to justsleeppodcast.com slash support to sign up. Or if you're an Apple user, just hit the try free button. Now on to tonight's story. Tonight, I will be reading The Lady Vanishes. By Ethel Lena White. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One Without Regrets. The day before the disaster, Iris Carr had her first premonition of danger. She was used to the protection of a crowd whom, with unconscious flattery, she called her friends. An attractive orphan of independent means, 
she had been surrounded always with clumps of people. They thought for her, or rather, she accepted their opinions, and they shouted for her, since her voice was rather too low in register for mass social intercourse. Their constant presence tended to create the illusion that she moved in a large circle, in spite of the fact that the same faces reoccurred with seasonal regularity. They also made her pleasantly aware of popularity. Her photograph appeared in the pictorial papers through the medium of a photographer's offer of publicity after the press announcement of her engagement to one of the crowd. This was fame. Then shortly afterwards, her engagement was broken by mutual consent, which was a lawful occasion for the reproduction of another portrait, more fame. And her mother, who died at her birth, might have wept or smiled at these pitiful flickers of human vanity arising like bubbles of marsh gas on the darkness below. When she experienced her first threat of insecurity, Iris was feeling especially well and happy after an unconventional health holiday. With the triumph of near pioneers, the crowd had swooped down on a beautiful village of picturesque squalor, tucked away in a remote corner of Europe, and taken possession of it by the act of scrawling their names in the visitor's book. For nearly a month, they had invaded the only hotel to the delighted demoralization of the innkeeper and his staff. They scrambled up mountains, swam in the lake, and sunbathed on every available slope. When they were indoors, they filled the bar, shouted against the wireless, and tipped for every trifling service. The proprietor beamed at them over his choked cash register, and the smiling waiters gave them preferential treatment to the legitimate annoyance of the other English guests. To these six persons, Iris appeared just one of her crowd, a typical semi-society girl, vain, selfish, and useless. Naturally, they had no knowledge of redeeming points, a generosity which made her accept the bill as a matter of course when she lunched with her friends, and a real compassion for such cases of hardship which were clamped down under her eyes. But while she was only vaguely conscious of fugitive moments of discontent and self-contempt, she was aware of a fastidious streak which kept her aloof from any tendency to Saturnalia. On this holiday, she heard Pan's pipes, but had no experience of the kick of his hairy hindquarters. Soon the slack convention of the crowd had been relaxed. They grew brown, they drank and were merry, while matrimonial boundaries were pleasantly blurred. Surrounded by a mixed bag of vague married couples, it was a sharp shock to Iris when one of the women, Olga, suddenly developed a belated sense of property and accused her of stealing a husband. Besides the unpleasantness of the scene, her sense of justice was outraged. She had merely tolerated a neglected male, who seemed a spare part in the dislocated domestic machine. It was not her fault that he had lost his head. To make matters worse, at this crisis, she failed to notice any signs of real loyalty among her friends who had plainly enjoyed the excitement. Therefore, to ease the tension, she decided not to travel back to England with the party, but to stay on for two days longer, alone. She was still feeling sore on the following day when she accompanied the crowd to the little primitive railway station. They had already reacted to the prospect of a return to civilization. They wore fashionable clothes again and were roughly sorted into legitimate couples as a natural sequence to the identification of suitcases and reservations. The train was going to Trieste, which was definitely on the map. It was packed with tourists, who were also going back to pavements and lampposts. Forgetful of hillside and starlight, the crowd responded to the general noise and bustle. It seemed to recapture its old loyalty as it clustered round Iris. Sure you won't be bored, darling? Change your mind and hop on. You've simply got to come. As the whistle was blown, they tried to pull her into their carriage, just as she was, in shorts and nailed boots, and with a brown glaze of sunburn on her unpowdered face. She fought like a boxing kangaroo to break free, and only succeeded in jumping down as the platform was beginning to slide past the window. Laughing and panting from the struggle, she stood and waved out of the receding train until it disappeared round the bend of the gorge.
she felt almost guilty as she realized her relief at parting from her friends. But although the holiday had been a success, she had drawn her pleasure chiefly from primeval sources, sun, water, and mountain breeze. Steeped in nature, she had vaguely resented the human intrusion. They had all been together too closely and too intimately. At times she had been conscious of jarring notes, a woman's high, thin laugh, the tubby outline of a man's body poised to dive, a continual flippant appeal to my God. It was true that while she had grown critical of her friends, she had floated with the current. Like the others, she had raved of marvellous scenery while she accepted it as a matter of course. It was a natural sequence that when one travelled off the map, the landscape improved automatically as the standard sanitation lapsed. At last, she was alone with the mountains and the silence. Below her lay a grass-green lake, sparkling with diamond reflections of the sun. The snowy peaks of distant ranges were silhouetted against a cornflower blue sky. On a hill rose the dark pile of an ancient castle, with its five turrets pointing upwards like the outspread fingers of a sinister hand. Everywhere was a riot of colour. The station garden foamed with exotic flowers, flame and yellow, rising from spiked foliage. Higher up the slope, the small wooden hotel was painted ochre and crimson lake. Against the green wall of the gorge rose the last coil of smoke, like floating white feathers. When it had faded away, Iris felt that the last link had been severed between her and the crowd. Blowing a derisive kiss, she turned away and clattered down the steep stony path. When she reached the glacier-fed river, she lingered on the bridge to feel the iced air which arose from the greenish-white oil. As she thought of yesterday's scene, she vowed that she never wanted to see the crowd again. They were connected with an episode which violated her idea of friendship. She had been a little fond of the woman, Olga, who had repaid her loyalty by a crude exhibition of jealousy. She shrugged away the memory. Hair, under the limitless blue, people seemed so small, their passions so paltry. They were merely incidental to the passage from the cradle to the grave. One met them and parted from them without regrets. Every minute, the gap between her and them was widening. They were steaming away out of her life. At the thought, she thrilled with a sense of new freedom, as though her spirit were liberated by the silence and the solitude. Yet before many hours had passed, she would have bartered all the glories of nature to have called them back again. Chapter 2 The Threat Some four hours later, Iris lay spread-eagled on a slope of the mountain, high above the valley. Ever since she had left the chill twilight of the gorge, at a shrine which marked a union of paths, she had been climbing steadily upwards by a steep zigzag track. After she had emerged from the belt of shadow, the sun had beat fiercely through her, but she did not slacken her pace. The fury of her thoughts drove her on, for she could not dislodge Olga from her mind. The name was like a burr on her brain. Olga. Olga had eaten her bread in the form of toast, for the sake of her figure, and had refused her salt owing to a dietetic fad. This had made trouble in the kitchen. Olga had used her telephone and misused her car. Olga had borrowed her fur coat and had lent her a superfluous husband. At the memory of Olga's Oscar, Iris put on a sprint. As if I'd skid for a man who looks like Mickey Mouse, she raged. She was out of breath when, at last, she threw herself down on the turf and decided to call it a day. The mountain which had challenged her kept withdrawing as she advanced, so she had to give up her intention to reach the top. As she lay with her eyes almost closed, listening to the ping of the breeze, her serenity returned. A clump of harebells, standing out against the skyline, seemed hardened and magnified to a metallic belfry, while she herself was dwarfed and welded into the earth, part of it like the pebbles in the roots. In imagination, she could almost hear the pumping of a giant heart underneath her head. The moment passed, for she began to think of Olga again. This time, however, she viewed her from a different standpoint, 
for the altitude had produced the usual illusion of superiority. She reminded herself that the valley was 4,000 feet above sea level, while she had mounted about 5,000 feet. On the basis of this calculation, she could afford to be generous, since she was 9,000 feet taller than her former friend, assuming, of course, that Olga was obliging enough as to remain at sea level. She decided to wash out the memory as unworthy of further anger. But never again, she said. After this, I'll never help anyone again. Her voice had the passionate fervor of one who dedicates herself to some service. With the virtuous feeling of having profited by a lesson for which heavy fees had been paid, she smoked a cigarette before the return journey. The air was so clear that mountains she had never seen before quivered out of invisibility and floated in the sky in mauve transparencies. Far below she could see an arm of the lake, no longer green, but dimmed by distance to a misted blue. Reluctantly, she rose to her feet. It was time to go. The descent proved not only monotonous, but painful, for the continual backward jolt of her weight threw a strain on unexercised muscles. Her calves began to ache, and her toes were stubbed on the stony path. Growing impatient, she decided to desert the zigzag in favor of a direct shortcut down the face of the mountain. With the lake as a guide to direction, she hurled herself down the slope. It was a bold venture, but almost immediately she found that the gradient was too steep. As she was going too quickly to stop, her only course was to drop down to a sitting posture and glissade over the slippery turf, trusting to luck. From that moment, things happened quickly. Her pace increased every second in spite of her efforts to break with her feet. Patches of blue and green sped past her as the valley rushed up to meet her and smashed into the sky. Bumping over the rough ground, she stared towards a belt of the trees at the bottom, in the hope that they might save her from a complete spill. Unfortunately, they proved to be rotten from age, and she crashed through them to land with a bump in the middle of the stony pass. Her fall had been partially broken, but she felt very sore and shaken as she scrambled to her feet. In spite of her injuries, she did not forget to give the forced laugh which had been drilled into her at school as the accompaniment to any game's casualty. Rather amusing, she murmured, picking splinters out of her legs. But she was pleased to notice the shrine a few yards further up the track, for this was a definite tribute to her staring. As she was not far from the hotel, she clattered down the gully, thinking of the comforts which awaited her. A long, cold drink, a hot bath, dinner in bed. When she caught sight of a gleam of water at the bend of the gorge, in her eagerness she broke into a limping run. She rounded the corner and then stopped, staring before her in utter bewilderment. All the familiar landmarks had disappeared, as though some interfering person had passed a rubber over the landscape. There were no little wooden houses, no railway station, no pier, no hotel. With a pang of dismay, she realized that she had stared by a faulty compass. This was not their familiar green lake in which she and her friends had bathed daily. Instead of being deep and ovoid in shape, it was a winding, pale blue mare with shallow, rushing margins. In the circumstances, there was but one thing to do. Retrace her steps back to the shrine and follow the other gully. It was definitely amusing, and she achieved quite a creditable laugh before she began to plod slowly upwards again. Her mood was too bleak for her to appreciate the savage grandeur of the scenery. It was a scene of stark desolation, riven by landslips and piled high with shattered rocks. There was no crop of vegetation amid the boulders, no chirp of a bird. The only sounds were the rattle of loose stones dislodged by her feet and the splash of a shrunken torrent, which foamed over its half-dried course like a tangled white thread. Used to perpetual company, Iris began to long for faces and voices. In her loneliness, she was even reduced to the flabbiness of self-pity. She reminded herself that when she returned to England, she would not go home like others. She would merely go back. At present, she was living at a hotel, for she had sublet her small luxury flat. Although her mode of living was her own choice, at such a time and such a place, 
she felt that she paid a high price for freedom. Her mood did not last, for at the top of the pass she was faced with a call upon her fortitude. Casting about to pick up her bearings, she made the discovery that the shrine was different from the original landmark where she had struck the mountain zigzag. This time she did not laugh, for she felt that humor might be carried too far. Instead, she was furious with herself. She believed that she knew these mountains because, with the others, she had clattered up and down the gorges like a pack of wild goats. But she had merely followed, while others led. Among the crowd was the inevitable leader, the youth with the map. Thrown on her own resources, she had not the least idea of her direction. All she could do was to follow the gorge up to its next ramification and trust to luck. If I keep on walking, I must get somewhere, she argued. Besides, no one can get lost who has a tongue. She had need of her stoicism, for she had grown desperately weary, in addition to the handicap of a sore heel. When at last she reached a branch which gave her a choice of roads, she was too distrustful of her own judgment to experiment. Sitting down on a boulder, she waited on the chance of hailing some passerby. It was her zero hour, when her independence appeared, only the faculty to sign checks drawn on money made by others, and her popularity, but a dividend of the same checks. I've been carried all my life, she thought, and even if someone comes, I'm the world's worst linguist. The description flattered her, for she had not the slightest claim to the title of linguist. Her ignorance of foreign languages was the result of being finished at Paris and Dresden. During the time she was at school, she mixed exclusively with other English girls, while the natives who taught her acquired excellent English accents. This was her rendering of the line in the national anthem, Send Us Victorious. Patriotism did not help her now, for she felt slightly doubtful when the thick-set man, wearing leather shorts and dirty-colored braces, swung up the pass. Among Iris's crowd was a youth who was clever at languages. From his knowledge of common roots, he had managed to use German as a kind of liaison language, but he had to draw on his imagination in order to interpret and be understood. Iris had a vivid recollection of how the crowd used to hoot with derision at his failures when she called out to the man in English and asked him to direct her to the village. He stared at her, shrugged, and shook his head. Her second attempt, in a louder key, met with no better success. The peasant, who seemed in a hurry, was passing on when Iris barred his way. She was acutely aware of her own impotence, as though she were some maimed creature whose tongue had been torn out. But she had to hold his attention, to compel him to understand. Feeling that she had lapsed from the dignity of a rational being, she was forced to make pantomimic gestures, pointing to the alternative routes in turn, while she kept repeating the name of the village. He must get that, unless he's an idiot, she thought. The man seemed to grasp her drift, for he nodded several times. But instead of indicating any direction, he broke into unfamiliar jargon. As Iris listened to the torrent of guttural sounds, her nerve snapped suddenly. She felt cut off from all human intercourse, as though a boundary line had been wiped out, and instead of being in Europe, she was stranded in a corner of Asia. Without money and without a common language, she could wander indefinitely. At that moment, she might be headed away from the village and into the wilds. The gorge had many tributary branches, like the windings of an inland sea. As she grew afraid, the peasant's face began to waver, like the illusion of some bad dream. She noticed that his skin glistened and that he had a slight goiter, but she was definitely conscious of his steamy goatish smell, for he was sweating from his climb. I can't understand you, she cried hysterically. I can't understand one word. Stop, oh stop, you'll drive me mad. In his turn, the man heard only a string of gibberish. He saw a girl dressed like a man who was unattractively skinny, according to the local standard of beauty, with cut, dirty knees. She was a foreigner, although he did not know her nationality. Further, she was worked up to a pitch of excitement and was exceptionally stupid. She did not seem to grasp that she was telling him less than half the name of the village, whereas three different hamlets had the same prefix. He had explained this to her and asked for the full word. 
Aris could not have supplied it even if she had understood the man. The name of the village was such a tongue twister that she had never tried to disentangle it, but like the rest, had called it by its first three syllables. The position was stalemate. With a final grimace and a shrug, the peasant went on his way, leaving Aris alone with the mountains. They overhung her like a concrete threat. She had bought picture postcards of them and broadcast them with a stereotyped comment, marvellous scenery. Once she had even scrawled, this is my room, and marked a peak with a derisive cross. Now, the mountains were having their revenge. As she cowered under the projecting cliffs, she felt they had but to shake those towering brows to crush her to powder beneath an avalanche of boulders. They dwarfed her to insignificance. They blotted out her individuality. They extinguished her spirit. The spell was broken by the sound of English voices. Round the bend of the pass came the honeymoon couple from the hotel. This pair of lovers was respected even by the crowd for the completeness of their reserve and the splendor of their appearance. The man was tall, handsome, and of commanding carriage. His voice was authoritative, and he held his head at an angle which suggested excessive pride. Waiters scampered at his nod, and the innkeeper, probably on the strength of his private sitting room, called him my lord. His wife was almost as tall, with a perfect figure and a flawless face. She wore beautiful clothes which were entirely unsuitable for the wilds, but it was obvious that she dressed thus as a matter of course, and to please only her husband. They set their own standard and appeared unconscious of the other visitors, who accepted them as belonging to a higher social sphere. It was suspected that the name Todhunter, under which they had registered, was a fiction to preserve their anonymity. They passed Iris almost without notice. The man raised his hat vaguely, but his glance held no recognition. His wife never removed her violet eyes from the stony track. Her heels were perilously high. She was speaking in a low voice, which was a vehement in spite of its muffled tone. No, darling, not another day, not even for you. We've stayed to... Iris lost the rest of the sentence. She prepared to follow them at a discreet distance, for she had become acutely aware of her own wrecked appearance. The arrival of the honeymoon pair had restored her sense of values. Their presence was proof that the hotel was not far away. They never walked any distance. At the knowledge, the mountains shrank back to camera subjects while she was reconstructed from a lost entity to a London girl who was critical about the cut of her shorts. Very soon she recognized the original shrine when she had deserted the pass. Limping painfully down the track, presently she caught the gleam of the darkening lake and the lights of the hotel shining through the green gloom. She began to think again of a hot bath and dinner as she remembered that she was both tired and hungry. But although apparently only the physical traces of her adventure remained, actually, her sense of security had been assailed, as if the experience were a threat from the future, to reveal the horror of helplessness far away from all that was familiar. Chapter 3 Conversation Piece When the honeymoon pair returned to the hotel, the four remaining guests were sitting outside on the graveled square before the veranda. They were enjoying the restful interlude of Between the Lights. It was too dark to write letters or read, too early to dress for dinner. Empty cups and cake crumbs on one of the tables showed that they had taken afternoon tea in the open and had not moved since. It was typical of two of them, the Mrs. Flood Porter, to settle. They were not the kind that flitted, being in the fifties and definitely set in their figures and their habits. Both had immaculately waved grey hair, which retained sufficient samples of the original tint to give them the courtesy title of blondes. They had also in common excellent natural complexions and rather fierce expressions. The delicate skin of the elder, Miss Evelyn, was slightly shriveled, for she was nearly sixty, while Miss Rose was only just out of the forties. The younger sister was taller and stouter, her voice was louder, her colour deeper. In an otherwise excellent character was a streak of amiable bully, which made her inclined to scold her partner at contract. 
During their visit, they had formed a quartet with the Reverend Kenneth Barnes and his wife. They had traveled out on the same train, and they planned to return to England together. The vicar and his wife had the gift of pleasant companionship, which the Mrs. Flood Porter, who were without it, attributed to mutual tastes and prejudices. The courtyard was furnished with iron chairs and tables, enameled in brilliant colors, and was decorated with tubs of dusty, evergreen shrubs. As Miss Flood Porter looked around her, she thought of her own delightful home in a cathedral city. According to the papers, there had been rain in England, so the garden should look its best, with vivid green grass and lush borders of asters and dahlias. I'm looking forward to seeing my garden again, she said. Ours, corrected her sister, who was John Blunt. And I'm looking forward to a comfortable chair, laughed the vicar. Ha, here comes the bridal pair. In spite of the sympathetic interest in his fellows, he did not call out a genial greeting. He had learned from his first and final rebuff that they had resented any intrusion on their privacy. So he leaned back, puffing at his pipe, while he watched them mount the steps of the veranda. Handsome pair, he said in an approving voice. I wonder who they really are, remarked Miss Flood Porter. The man's face is familiar to me. I know I've seen him somewhere. On the pictures, perhaps, suggested her sister. Oh, do you go? broke in Mrs. Barnes eagerly, hoping to claim another taste in common, for she concealed a guilty passion for the cinema. Only to see George Arliss and Diana Winard, explained Miss Flood Porter. That settles it, said the vicar. He's certainly not George Arliss, and neither is she Diana. All the same, I feel certain there's some mystery about them, persisted Miss Flood Porter. So do I, agreed Mrs. Barnes. I, I wonder if they're really married. Are you? asked her husband quickly. He laughed gently when his wife flushed to her eyes. Sorry to startle you, my dear, he said, but isn't it simpler to believe that we are all of us what we assume to be, even parsons and their wives? He knocked the ashes out of his pipe and rose from his chair. I think I'll stroll down to the village for a chat with my friends. How can he talk to them when he doesn't know their language, demanded Miss Rose bluntly, when the vicar had gone from the garden. Oh, he makes them understand, explained his wife proudly. Sympathy, you know, and common humanity. He'd rub noses with a savage. I'm afraid we drove him away by talking scandal, said Miss Flood Porter. It was my fault, declared Mrs. Barnes. I know people think I'm curious, but really I have to force myself to show an interest in my neighbor's affairs. It's my protest against our terrible national shyness. But we're proud of that, broke in Miss Rode. England does not need to advertise. Of course not. But we only pass this way once. I have to remind myself that the stranger sitting beside me may be in some trouble and that I might be able to help. The sisters looked at her with approval. She was a slender woman in the mid-forties with a pale oval face, dark hair, and a sweet expression. Her large brown eyes were both kind and frank, her manner sincere. It was impossible to connect her with anything but rigid honesty. They knew that she floundered into awkward explanations rather than run the risk of giving false impressions. In her turn, she liked the sisters. They were of solid worth and sound respectability. One felt that they would serve on juries with distinction and do their duty to their God and their neighbor, while permitting no direction as to its nature. They were also leisured people, with a charming house and garden, well-trained maids and frozen assets in the bank. Mrs. Barnes knew this, so being human, it gave her a feeling of superiority to reflect that the one man in their party was her husband. She could appreciate the sense of ownership, because up to her fortieth birthday, she had gone on her yearly holiday in the company of a huddle of other spinsters. Since she had left school, she had earned her living by teaching, until the miracle happened, which gave her not only a husband, but a son. Both she and her husband were so wrapped up in the child that the vicar sometimes feared that their devotion was tempting fate. The night before they set out on their holiday, he proposed a pact. Yes, he agreed, looking down at the sleeping boy in his cot. He is beautiful, but it is my privilege to read the commandments to others. Sometimes I wonder. I know what you mean, interrupted his wife. Idolatry. 
he nodded. I am as guilty as you, he admitted, so I mean to discipline myself. In our position, we have special opportunities to influence others. We must not grow lopsided, but develop every part of our nature. If this holiday is to do us real good, it must be a complete mental change. My dear, suppose we agree not to talk exclusively of Gabriel while we are away. Mrs. Barnes agreed, but her promise did not prevent her from thinking of him continually. Although they had left him in the care of a competent grandmother, she was foolishly apprehensive about his health. While she was counting the remaining hours before her return to her son, and Miss Flood Porter smiled in anticipation of seeing her garden, Miss Rose was pursuing her original train of thought. She always ploughed a straight furrow, right to its end. I can't understand how anyone can tell a lie, she declared, unless perhaps some poor devil who's afraid of being sacked. But people like us, we know a wealthy woman who boasts of making false declarations of the customs, share dishonesty. As she spoke, Iris appeared at the gate of the hotel garden. She did her best to skirt the group at the table, but she could not avoid hearing what was said. Perhaps I should not judge others, remarked Mrs. Barnes in the clear, carrying voice of a foremistress. I've never felt the slightest temptation to tell a lie. Liar, thought Iris automatically. She was in a state of utter fatigue which bordered on collapse. It was only by the exercise of every atom of willpower that she forced herself to reach the hotel. The ordeal had strained her nerves almost to breaking point. Although she longed for the quiet of her room, she knew she could not mount the stairs without a short rest. Every muscle felt wrenched as she dropped down in an iron chair and closed her eyes. If anyone speaks to me, I'll scream, she thought. The Mrs. Flood Porter exchanged glances and turned down the corners of their mouths. Even gentle Mrs. Barnes' soft brown eyes held no welcome, for she had been a special victim of the crowd's bad manners and selfishness. They behaved as though they had bought the hotel, and the other guests were interlopers, exacting preferential treatment and getting it by bribery. This infringement of fair dealing annoyed the other tourists, as they adhered to the terms of their payment to a travelling agency which included service. The crowd monopolized the billiard table and secured the best chairs. They were always served first at meals, courses gave out, and bath water ran lukewarm. Even the vicar found that his charity was strained. He did his best to make allowance for the animal spirits of youth, although he was aware that several among the party could not be termed juvenile. Unfortunately, Iris's so-called friends included two persons who were no testimonial for the English nation and since it was difficult to distinguish one girl in a bathing brief from another, Mrs. Barnes was of the opinion that they were all doing the same thing, getting drunk and making love. Her standard of decency was offended by the sunbathing, her nights disturbed by noise. Therefore, she was specially grateful for the prospect of two peaceful days spent amid glorious scenery and in congenial company. But apparently... There was not a complete clearance of the crowd. There was a hangover in this girl, and there might be others. Mrs. Barnes had vaguely remarked Iris because she was pretty and had been pursued by a bathing gentleman with a matronly figure. As the man was married, his selection was not to her credit. But she seemed to be so exhausted that Mrs. Barnes' kindly heart soon reproached her for her lack of sympathy. Are you left all alone, she called in her brightest tones. Iris shuddered at the unexpected overture. At that moment, the last thing in the world she wanted was mature interest, which in her experience masked curiosity. Yes, she replied. Oh dear, what a shame. Aren't you lonely? No. But you're rather young to be travelling without friends. Couldn't any one of your people come with you? I have none. No family at all? No, and no relatives. Aren't I lucky? Iris was not near enough to hear the horrified gasp of the Mrs. Flood Porter, but Mrs. Barnes' silence told her that her snub had not miscarried. To avoid a further inquisition, she made a supreme effort to rise, for she was stiffening in every joint, and managed to drag herself into the hotel and upstairs to her room. Mrs. Barnes tried to carry off the incident with a laugh. I'm afraid I've blundered again, she said. She plainly resented me but it seemed hardly human for us to sit like dummies and show no interest in her. 
Is she interested in you? Demanded Miss Rose. Or in us? That sort of girl is utterly selfish. She wouldn't raise a finger or go an inch out of her way to help anyone. There was only one answer to the question, which Mrs. Barnes was too kind to make. So she remained silent, since she could not tell a lie. Neither she, nor anyone else, could foretell the course of the next twenty-four hours, but this girl, standing alone against the cloud of witnesses, would endure such anguish of spirit as threatened her sanity, on behalf of a stranger for whom she had no personal feeling. Or rather, if there was actually such a person as Miss Froy. Chapter 4 England Calling Because she had a square on her palm, which according to a fortune teller, signified safety, Iris believed that she lived in a protected area. Although she laughed at the time, she was impressed secretly because hers was a specially sheltered life. At this crisis, the stars as usual seemed to be fighting for her. The mountains had sent out a preliminary warning. During the evening, too, she received overtures of companionship which might have delivered her from mental isolation. Yet she deliberately cut every strand which linked her with safety out of mistaken loyalty to her friends. She missed them directly. She entered the lounge, which was silent and deserted. As she walked along the corridor, she passed empty bedrooms with stripped beds and littered floors. Mattresses hung from every window, and the small verandas were heaped with pillows. It was not only company which was lacking, but moral support. The crowd never troubled to change for the evening unless comfort suggested flannel trousers. On one occasion, it had achieved the triumph of a complaint when a lady appeared at dinner dressed in her bathing slip. The plaintiffs had been the Mrs. Flood Porter, who always wore expensive but sober dinner gowns. Iris remembered the incident when she had finished her bath. Although slightly ashamed of her deference to public opinion, she fished from a suitcase an unpacked afternoon frock of crinkled crepe. The hot silken rest had refreshed her, but she felt lonely as she leaned over the balustrade. Her pensive pose and the graceful lines of her dress arrested the attention of the bridegroom, Todd Hunter, according to the register, as he strolled out of his bedroom. He had not the least knowledge of her identity, or that he had acted as a sort of guiding star to her in the gorge. He and his wife took their meals in their private sitting room and never mingled with the crowd. He concluded, therefore, that she was an odd guest whom he had missed in the general scramble. Approving her with an experienced eye, he stopped. Quiet tonight, he remarked. Refreshing change after the din of that horrible rabble. To his surprise, the girl looked coldly at him. It is quiet, she said, but I happen to miss my friends. As she walked downstairs, she felt defiantly glad that she had made him realize his blunder. Championship of her friends mattered more than the absence of social sense. But in spite of her triumph, the incident was vaguely unpleasant. The crowd had gloried in its unpopularity, which seemed to it a sign of superiority. It frequently remarked in complacent voices, We're not popular with these people, or they don't really like us. Under the influence of its mass hypnotism, Iris wanted no other label. And now that she was alone, it was not quite so amusing to realize that the guests, who were presumably decent and well-bred, considered her an outsider. Her mood was bleakly defiant when she entered the restaurant. It was a big, bare room, hung with stiff, deep blue wallpaper, patterned with conventional gilt stars. The electric lights were set in clumsy wrought-iron chandeliers, which suggested a Hollywood set for a medieval castle. Scarcely any of the tables were laid, and only one waiter drooped at the door. In a few days, the hotel would be shut up for the winter. With the departure of the big English party, most of the holiday staff had become superfluous and had already gone back to their homes in the district. The remaining guests appeared to be unaffected by the air of neglect and desolation inseparable from the end of the season. The Mrs. Flood Porter shared a table with the vicar and his wife. They were all in excellent spirits and gave the impression of having come into their own as they capped each other's jokes culled from punch. Iris pointedly chose a small table in a far corner. She smoked a cigarette while she waited to be served. The others were advanced in their meal, and it was a novel sensation for one of the crowd to be in arrears. 
Mrs. Barnes, who was too generous to nurse resentment for her snub, looked at her with admiring eyes. How pretty that girl looks in a frock, she said. Afternoon frock, qualified Miss Floodporter. We always make a point of wearing evening dress for dinner when we're on the continent. If we didn't dress, we should feel we were letting England down, explained the younger sister. Although Iris spun out her meal to its limit, she was driven back ultimately to the lounge. She was too tired to stroll and it was early for bed. As she looked round her, she could hardly believe that, only the night before, it had been a scene of continental glitter and gaiety, although the latter quality had been imported from England. Now that it was no longer filled with friends, she was shocked to notice its tawdry theatrical finery. The gilt cane chairs were tarnished, the crimson plush upholstery shabby. A clutter of cigarette stubs and spent matches in the palm pots brought a lump to her throat. They were all that remained of the crowd. As she sat apart, the vicar, pipe in mouth, watched her with a thoughtful frown. His clear-cut face was both strong and sensitive, and an almost perfect blend of flesh and spirit. He played rough football with the youths of his parish, and afterwards took their souls by assault. But he also had a real understanding of the problems of his women parishioners. When his wife told him of Iris's wish for solitude, he could enter into her feeling because, sometimes, he yearned to escape from people, and even from his wife. His own inclination was to leave her to the boredom of her own company, yet he was touched by the dark lines under her eyes and her mournful lips. In the end, he resolved to ease his conscience at the cost of a rebuff. He knew it was coming because, as he crossed the lounge, she looked up quickly as though on guard. Another, she thought. From a distance, she had admired the spirituality of his expression, but tonight, he was numbered among her hostile critics. Horrible rabble. The words floated in her memory as he spoke to her. If you're traveling back to England alone, would you care to join our party? When are you going? she asked. The day after tomorrow, before they take off the last through train of the season. But I'm going tomorrow. Thanks so much. Then I'll wish you a pleasant journey. The vicar smiled faintly at her lightning decision as he crossed to a table and began to address luggage labels. His absence was his wife's opportunity. In her wish not to break her promise, she had gone to the other extreme and had not mentioned her baby to her new friends, save for one casual allusion to our little boy. But now that the holiday was nearly over, she could not resist the temptation of showing his photograph, which had won a prize in a local baby competition. With a guilty glance at her husband's back, she drew out of her bag a limp leather case. This is my large son, she said, trying to hide her pride. The Mrs. Flood Porter were exclusive animal lovers and not particularly fond of children. But they said all the correct things with such well-bred conviction that Mrs. Barnes' heart swelled with triumph. Miss Rose, however, switched off to another subject. Directly, the visitor returned from the writing table. Do you believe in warning dreams, Mr. Barnes, she asked, because last night I dreamed of a railway smash. The question caught Iris's attention and she strained to hear the vicar's reply. I'll answer your question, he said, if you'll first answer mine. What is a dream? Is it stifled apprehension? I wonder, said a bright voice in Iris's ear, I wonder if you'd like to see the photograph of my little son, Gabriel. Iris realized dimly that Mrs. Barnes, who was keeping up England in limp brown lace, had seated herself beside her. I was showing her the photograph of a naked baby. She made a pretense of looking at it while she tried to listen to the vicar. Gabriel, she repeated vaguely. Yes, after the archangel. We named him after him. How sweet. Did he send a mug? Mrs. Barnes stared incredulously while her sensitive face grew scarlet. She believed that the girl had been intentionally profane and had insulted her precious little son to avenge her boredom. Pressing her trembling lips together, she rejoined her friends. Iris was grateful when the humming in her ears ceased. She was unaware of her slip because she had only caught a fragment of Mrs. Barnes' explanation. Her interest was still held by the talk of presentiments. Say what you like, declared Miss Rose, sweeping away the vicar's argument. I've common sense on my side. They usually try to pack too many passengers into the last good train of the season. I know I'll be precious glad when I'm safely back in England.
A spirit of apprehension quivered in the air at her words. But you aren't really afraid of an accident, cried Mrs. Barnes, clutching Gabriel's photograph tightly. Of course not, Miss Flood Porter answered for her sister. Only, perhaps we feel we're rather off the beaten track here, and so far from home. Our trouble is we don't know a word of the language. She means, cut in Miss Rose, we're all right over reservations and coupons so long as we stick to hotels and trains. But if some accident happened to make us break our journey or lose a connection, and we were stranded in some small place, we should feel lost. Besides, it would be awkward about money. We didn't bring any traveller's checks. The elder sister appealed to the vicar. Do you advise us to take my sister's dream as a warning and travel back tomorrow? No, don't, murmured Iris under her breath. She waited for the vicar's answer with painful interest, for she was not eager to travel in the same train as these uncongenial people, who might feel it their duty to befriend her. You must follow your own inclinations, said the vicar, but if you do leave prematurely, you will not only give a victory to superstition, but you will deprive yourself of another day in these glorious surroundings. And our reservations are for the day after tomorrow, remarked Miss Rose. We better not risk any muddles. And now, I'm going up to pack my journey back to dear old England. To the surprise of everyone, her domineering voice suddenly blurred with emotion. Miss Flood Porter waited until she had gone out of the lounge before she explained. Nerves. We had a very trying experience just before we came away. The doctor ordered a complete change, so we came here instead of Switzerland. Then the innkeeper came in and, as a compliment to his guests, fiddled with his radio until he managed to get London on the long wave. Amid a machine-gun rattle of atmospherics, a familiar mellow voice informed them, You have just been listening to. But they had heard nothing. Miss Flood Porter saw her garden, silvered by the harvest moon. She wondered whether the chrysanthemum buds three to a pot were swelling, and if the blue salvias had escaped the slugs. Miss Rose, briskly stacking shoes in the bottom of a suitcase, quivered at a recollection. Again she saw a gaping hole in a garden bed, where overnight had stood a cherished clump of white delphiniums. It was not only the loss of their treasure, but the nerve-wracking ignorance of where the enemy would strike next. The vicar and his wife thought of their baby asleep in his cot. They must decide whether they should merely peep at him or risk waking him with a kiss. Iris remembered her friends in the Roaring Express and was suddenly smitten with a wave of homesickness. England was calling. Chapter 5 The Night Express Iris was awakened that night, as usual, by the express screaming through the darkness. Jumping out of bed, she reached the window in time to see it outline the curve of the lake with a fiery wire. As it rattled below the hotel, the golden streak expanded to a string of lighted windows, which when it passed, snapped together again like the links of a bracelet. After it had disappeared round the gorge, she followed its course by its pall of quivering red smoke. In imagination, she saw it shooting through Europe, as though it were an explosive shuttle ripping through the scorched fabric of the map. It caught up cities and threaded them on a gleaming, whistling string. Illuminated names flashed before her eyes and were gone. Bucharest, Zagreb, Trieste, Milan, Basel, Calais. Once again, she was flooded with home hunger, even though her future address were a hotel. Mixed with it was Augusta foreboding, which was a legacy from the mountains. Suppose something happened and I never came back. At that moment, she felt that any evil could block the way to her return. A railway crash, illness or crime were possibilities which were actually scheduled in other lives. They were happening all around her and at any time a line might give way in the protective square in her palm. As she lay and tossed, she consoled herself with the reminder that this was the last time she would lie under the lumpy, feathery bed. Throughout the next two nights, she too would be rushing through dark landscape, jerked out of every brief spell of sleep by the flash of lights whenever the express roared through a station. The thought was with her when she woke the next morning. 
to see the silhouette of mountain peaks iced against the flush of sunrise. I'm going home today, she told herself exultantly. The air was raw when she looked out of her window. Mist was rising from the lake, which gleamed greenly through yellowed fans of chestnut trees. But in spite of the blue and gold glory of autumn, she felt indifferent to its beauty. She was also detached from the drawbacks of a room which usually offended her critical taste. Its wooden walls were stained a crude shade of raw sienna, and instead of running water there was a battered washstand which bore a tin can covered with a thin towel. In spirit, Iris had already left the hotel. Her journey was begun before she started. When she went down to the restaurant, she was barely conscious of the other guests, who only a few hours before had inspired her with antipathy. The Mrs. Flood Porter, who were dressed for writing letters in the open, were breakfasting at a table by the window. They did not speak to her, although they would have bowed as a matter of courtesy had they caught her eye. Iris did not notice the omission because they had gone completely out of her life. She drank her coffee in silence, which was broken by occasional remarks from the sisters, who wondered whether the English weather were kind for a local military wedding. Her luck held, for she was spared contact with the other guests, who were engrossed by their own affairs. As she passed the bureau, Mrs. Barnes was calling a waiter's attention to a letter in one of the pigeonholes. Her grey jersey suit, as well as her packet of sandwiches, advertised an excursion. The vicar, who was filling his pipe on the veranda, was also in unconventional kit, shorts, sweater, nailed boots, and the local felt hat, adorned with a tiny blue feather, which he had bought as a souvenir of his holiday. His smile was so happy that Iris thought he looked both festive and good, as though a saint had deserted his shrine, knocking his halo a trifle askew in the process, in order to put a coat of sunburn over his pallid plaster. Her tolerance faded as she listened to a dialogue which was destined to affect her own future. Is that a letter from home? called the vicar. Yes, replied his wife after a pause. I thought Grandma told us to expect no more letters. What's she writing about? She wants me to do a little shopping for her on our way through London. Some Margaret Rose silk. A little princess, you know. But you'll be tired. It's not very considerate? No. Mrs. Barnes' voice was exceptionally sharp. It's not. Why didn't she think? Iris condoned her own ungracious conduct of the preceding night as she left them to their discussion. She told herself that she was justified in protecting herself from the boredom of domestic trifles. As she strolled past the front of the hotel, she had to draw back to avoid trespassing on the privacy of the honeymoon pair, whose sitting room opened onto the veranda. They were breakfasting in the open air off rolls and fruit. The man was resplendent in a Chinese dressing gown, while his wife wore an elaborate wrapper over satin pajamas. The Todd Hunters annoyed Iris because they affected her with vague discontent. She was conscious of the same unacknowledged blank when she watched a love scene played by two film stars. Theirs was passion, perfectly dressed, discreetly censored, and with the better profile presented to the camera. She felt a responsive thrill when the man looked into his bride's eyes with intense personal interest. Has it been perfect? he asked. Mrs. Todd Hunter knew exactly how long to pause before her reply. Yes. It was faultless timing, for he understood what she did not say. Not perfect then, he remarked. But darling, is anything? Iris passed out of earshot while she was still slightly envious. Her own experience of love had been merely a succession of episodes which led up to the photographic farce of her engagement. The morning seemed endless, but at length it wore away. She had little to pack because, following tradition, her friends had taken the bulk of her luggage with them to save her trouble. An hour or two were killed, or rather drowned, in the lake, but she was too impatient to lie in the sun. After she had changed for her journey, she went down to the restaurant. The dish of the day was attractively jellied and garnished with sprigs of tarragon, chervil, and chopped eggs, but she suspected that it was composed of poached eels. Turning away with a shudder, she took possession of a small buttercup-painted table in the graveled garden, where she lunched on potato soup and tiny grapes. The sun flickered through the dense roof of chestnuts, but the iron chair was too hard and cold for comfort. 
Although the express was not due for more than an hour, she decided to wait for it at the railway station where she could enjoy a view. She had worked herself up to a fever so that the act of leaving the hotel seemed to bring her a step nearer to her journey. It gave her acute pleasure to pay her bill and tip the stragglers at the staff. Although she saw none of her fellow guests, she hurried through the garden like a truant from school, as though she feared she might be detained at the last minute. It was strange to wear a sophisticated travelling suit and high heels again, as she jolted down the rough path, followed by a porter with her baggage. The sensation was not too comfortable after weeks of liberty, but she welcomed it as part of her return to civilization. When she was seated on the platform, her suitcase at her feet, and the shimmer of the lake below, she was conscious of having reached a peak of enjoyment. The air was water clear and held the sting of altitude. As the sun blazed down on her, she felt steeped in warmth and drenched in the light. She took off her hat and gazed at the signal post, anticipating the thrill of its drop, followed by the first glimpse of a foreshortened engine at the end of the rails. There were other people on the platform, for the arrival of the express was the main event of the day. It was too early for the genuine travellers, but groups of loiterers, both visitors and natives, hung round the fruit and paper stalls. They were a cheerful company and noisy in many languages. Iris heard no English until two men came down the road from the village. They leaned over the palings behind her to continue an argument. She did not feel sufficient interest at first to turn and see their faces, but their voices were so distinctive that presently she could visualize them. The one whom she judged the younger had an eager, untidy voice. She felt sure that he possessed an active brain with a rush of ideas. He spoke too quickly and often stumbled for a word, probably not because his terms were limited, but because he had a choice of too many. Gradually, he won her sympathy, partly because his mind seemed in tune or rather in discord with hers, and partly because she disliked the other speaker instinctively. His accent was pedantic and consciously cultured. He spoke deliberately, with an irritating authority which betrayed his inflexible mind. Oh no, my dear Hare. Iris felt it should have been Watson. You're abysmally wrong. It has been proved conclusively that there can be no fairer or better system of justice than trial by jury. Trial by fatheads, spluttered the younger voice. You talk of ordinary citizens. No one is ordinary, but a bag of his special prejudices. One woman's got a spite against her sex, one man's cranky immorality. They all damn the prisoner on different issues, and they've all businesses or homes which they want to get back to. They watch the clock and grasp the obvious. They are directed by the judge. And how much of his direction do they remember? You know how your own mind slips when you're listening to a string of words? Besides, after he's dotted all the I's and crossed the I's for them, they stampede and bring him in the wrong verdict. Why should you assume it is wrong? They have formed their own conclusion on the testimony of the witnesses. Witnesses. In his heat, the young man thumped the railing. The witness is the most damnable part of the outfit. He may be so stupid as to be putty in the hands of some wily lawyer, or he may be smart and lie away some wretched man's life, just to read about his own wonderful memory and powers of observation and see his photograph in the papers. They're all out for publicity. The elder man laughed in a superior manner which irritated his companion to the personal touch. When I'm accused of bumping you off, Professor, I'd rather be tried by a team of judges who'd bring trained legal minds and impartial justice to bear on the facts. You're biased, said the Professor. Let me try to convince you. The jury is intelligent in bulk and can judge character. Certain witnesses are reliable, while others must be viewed with suspicion. For instance, How would you describe that woman with the artificial lashes? Attractive. Hmm. I should call her meretricious, and so would any average man of the world. Now we'll assume that she and that English lady in the Burberry are giving contrary evidence. One of the two must be telling a lie. I don't agree. It may depend on the point of view. The man in the street with his own back garden is ready to swear to lilac when he sees it, but when he goes to a botanical garden, He finds it labeled Syringa. The generic name. I know, I know. 
But if one honest John citizen swears Syringa is white, while another swears it's mauve, you grant that there's an opportunity for confusion. Evidence may be like that. Haven't you wondered from my point? asked the conventional voice. Put those two women separately into the witness box. Now which are you going to believe? In her turn, Iris compared the hypothetical witnesses. One was a characteristic type of county Englishwoman with an athletic figure and a pleasant, intelligent face. If she strode across the station as though she possessed the right of way, she used it merely as a shortcut to her legitimate goal. On the other hand, the pretty woman was an obvious loiterer. Her skin-tight skirt and embroidered peasant blouse might have been the holiday attire of any continental lady, but in spite of her attractive red lips and expressive eyes, Iris could not help thinking of a thief who had just stolen a chicken for the pot. Against her will, she had to agree with the professor, yet she felt almost vexed with the younger man when he ceased to argue because she had backed the losing side. I see your point, he said. The British waterproof wins every time. But Congo rubber has a bloody business and to wholesale a belief in rubber-proofing may lead to a bloody mix-up. Come and have a drink. Thank you, if you will allow me to order it. I wish to avail myself of every opportunity of speaking the language. Wish I could forget it. It's a disgusting one, all spitting and sneezing. You lecture on modern languages, don't you? Many girl students in your classes? Yes, unfortunately. Iris was sorry when they moved away, for she had been idly interested in their argument. The crowd on the platform had increased, although the express was not due for another 25 minutes, even if it ran to time. She had now to share her bench with others, while a child squatted on her suitcase. Although spoiled by circumstances, she did not resent the intrusion. The confusion could not touch her, because she was held by the moment. The glow of sunshine, the green flicker of trees, the gleam of the lake, all combined to hypnotize her to a condition of stationary bliss. There was nothing to warn her of the attack. When she least expected it, the blow fell. Suddenly she felt a violent pain at the back of her neck. Almost before she realized it, the white-capped mountains rocked, the blue sky turned black, and she dropped down into darkness. Good night.